And uh, we're looking at Peter's first letter. Peter, one of the uh, original 12 uh, apostles, 12 disciples. And this is his first letter. And we're in the part of the letter where he is seeking to help the early Christians that he is writing to handle the attacks and the hostility that is coming their way. And as we saw last week, he wants, to, he wants them, he wants us to do that in ways that leave at least some of their attackers being attracted to Christ, not put off from Christ by response to hostility, but attracted to him. But again, as we saw last week, okay, that kind of, where does that kind of attractive life begin? It begins, Peter says, with our hearts, before working itself out in a disposition to submit to and to honor others including, amazingly, those in positions of authority, the very people who might have been attacking and being hostile to them. But now, in today's passage, Peter makes a move, and he moves from the public square to the privacy of the home. And he does that for a reason. Because according to philosophers like Aristotle, you know, who, had, who shaped the culture that these guys are living in, According to men like Aristotle, the home, the household, was the building block of the polis, of the city, of society. The household, the home, is what society is built on. And right order in the household, with the father as the head of the house at the top, that was the basis for a strong, stable, prosperous society. Okay, so what happens when members of that household, that building block of a stable society, start becoming Christians and they stop worshipping the gods of the head of the household? The gods on whom the prosperity and the welfare, supposedly, of the household and therefore of society depended. What happens when these Christians are going to stop worshipping those gods? And what happens when those household members start refusing to do some things that the head of the household tells them to do because they conflict with their Christian beliefs? And what if those household members just happen to be slaves, the very bottom of the household? And the answer's simple, isn't it? They're going to face trouble. They're going to face trouble for being Christians, and they're going to face trouble for doing or saying what is right. Okay, what's that got to do with you? Because if that's a, I mean, what has the plight of first century slaves got to do with us? Well, I want you to think about any relationship where there is an imbalance of power. Okay, any relationship where there's an imbalance of power, like with your boss at work or maybe your supervisor on campus, or with your coach, or any situation where you can find yourself in a minority. Yours is a minority view amongst others. And if you refuse to worship the gods of this age because you're a Christian, or whether or not you're a Christian, you refuse to do something you know is wrong, or you, um, because of your beliefs, or because of your sense of integrity, or you choose to speak out about something that you know to be right, you can also find yourself 
on the receiving end of hostility. Hostility from those who have a measure of power over you. So how are you supposed to handle that? Your first point then, the reality of injustice. The reality of it. Okay, look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. And the word for servants there is the word for household slaves. And of course, slavery in the Roman Empire is clearly different from that practiced by the British or by the Americans in the 17th to 1800s, because it wasn't race-based. And roles that we now consider professional, like managers, doctors, teachers, musicians, were often done by slaves. Plus, it wasn't uncommon for some slaves who had the financial means to buy their freedom for them to choose not to because staying in the household under the protection of the head of the household gave them some measure of protection. It was like their, their social safety net. So it's clearly different from what we might understand by slavery. And yet, slaves were still slaves, weren't they? I mean, they're still the property of their masters. They have no social capital or independent existence of their own. They could be beaten. They could be branded. They could be physically or sexually assaulted. And if they were, if their master did that to them, that was considered totally socially acceptable. Children born to slaves, they're not, they don't belong to the parents. They belong to the slave master. And while slaves could technically buy their freedom, how many of them do you think had the means to do it? Not many. And yet, here is Peter saying, verses 18 to 19, servants, be subject to your masters. And not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, you could read that or hear that and go, man, how could he say that? I mean, surely he should have outright opposed slavery. To tell slaves to submit to injustice, that just prolongs the injustice. And frankly, it is texts like these, you might say, that were used, and they were, to defend race-based slavery. And you might think, we should just dismiss this as a historical relic. You know, we shouldn't listen to this. We, didn't, we shouldn't shape our lives on this. We should dismiss it. Okay, so why should you shape your life on it? Okay, why, why should you listen to what Peter says here and not dismiss him? Well, firstly... Because Peter clearly understands that his friends are being beaten for doing the right thing and refusing to do the wrong thing. That's why it's unjust. Which means when Peter tells them to be subject to their masters, he does not just mean, hey, just do everything or anything they tell you to do. Because if that was the case, they, they wouldn't be being beaten it is precisely because Christian slaves were refusing to do what was wrong that they were being abused. And so Peter's point is not to address the position of slavery within a society. It is to help slaves who have no power to personally handle the injustice that they are on the receiving end of. And if you think about it, 
That is something that we all need to learn how to do. Okay, when I was a junior doctor, I was on call one night in the paediatric intensive care unit. And I was looking after an infant who that day had had complex um, cardiac surgery. And who, despite us doing everything right for, despite us you know, working hard and doing all the right things, this child was getting more and more sick. And I made, I tried to get hold of the cardiac surgeon, I made repeated calls to him, which he didn't answer, trying to get his advice, trying to ask him to come in and see the child, but I couldn't get hold of him. Until I finally did, and he agreed to come in. And when he did, in front of my colleagues, in front of all the nursing staff, he absolutely chewed me up and spat me out. It was the most humiliating experience. He's a cardiac surgeon. If you know anything about hospitals, he is at the top of the tree. I am a junior doctor, where do I go? I am right at the bottom of the tree. All of the power lies with him. And he absolutely went for me. Now, was I his slave? No. But was there an imbalance of power and I was being treated unjustly? Yes. And might my response to that possibly have had some implications for my career prospects? Like if I punched him? Okay, yes. Okay, think about your own situation. Are you your boss's or supervisor's slave? Now you're all sat there going, yes. But the truthful answer is no. But might you still experience unjust treatment at their hands? Yes. Or if as a Christian you speak up on campus or in the workplace for something like, I mean, let's just take something topical, something like a Christian understanding of sexual ethics, human sexuality, if you do that, could you get mowed down and potentially humiliated because you find yourself in a minority and there are more against you than are for you? The answer is yes. And how are you supposed to handle that kind of treatment when the power lies with those who are opposing you, who are on the other side? So it's highly relevant for us, I think. But secondly, if you think that Peter should have said more and outright condemned slavery, I want you to ask yourself, do you, can you see just how countercultural what Peter is saying here is? And how it doesn't just challenge their culture, but it challenges our culture. You see, Peter is speaking to slaves directly. Servants, slaves. No one else did that. Before Christianity came along, any direction on how individuals within a household should behave was directed to the head of the household. No one addressed slaves directly, because they've got no independent existence of their own. But Peter speaks to them as free moral agents in their own right, just like their masters are. They are people who are responsible for their own moral conduct. They have a value and a dignity equivalent to everyone else Peter addresses. And that was a serious subversion of the cultural norm. 
But notice he also says that they are suffering injustice. So what, you might say? That's obvious. They're being beaten by their masters. Really? Is it so obvious that that's unjust? Why? See, Aristotle made the point that slaves could not suffer injustice. That's what their culture thought. A slave is their master's property. A master can treat a slave however he wants. A slave could never claim, you can't treat me like that. Because concepts of justice and injustice did not apply to slaves. But here is Peter saying, yes, they do. And you can and you are being treated unjustly. You should not be being treated like this. But of course, that's why it's a challenge for our own culture, isn't it? For our own secular culture. Because why shouldn't they be being treated like this? Why is it unjust? What grounds do you give that a master should not beat his slave? You see, today, talk of injustice or the need to correct historical injustice is everywhere. But where secularism comes unstuck is being able to say why anything is unjust. Because if the answer is because we say so, or because now everyone agrees it's unjust because of the public opinion, the majority says it is, or because we can shout louder and longer than you, isn't that just a power play, just as much as a first century master shouting at or beating his slave? And if it's based on what the majority say, isn't that a version of what Tocqueville called democratic despotism? The majority enforcing on the minority. And if what is right or just is determined by public opinion, what happens when public opinion decides it is okay to wipe out a minority like the Jews? But of course, we'd all say, whether you're religious or secular, everyone would say, no, some things are always wrong, like beating an innocent slave or wiping out a minority, whatever the culture. But is it? Because if that's true, that means there must be such a thing as universal justice that transcends culture, which means there must be a universal law and a universal lawmaker to whom everyone, despite their culture, despite the time they live in, has to give an account, is measured against. But of course, secularism will say, uh, we can't say that, we can't go there. So they cannot tell you why injustice is injustice, or even why you want a world free of injustice. But Peter can. Okay, so if you're not yet a Christian, ask yourself, what makes most sense of your desire for justice and in the fact that deep down you know there is such a thing as justice? Is it secularism, which can give you no grounds for it? Or is it Christianity, which can? Second point then, the response to injustice. Okay, so how should a first century slave, how should a 21st century you respond to being treated unjustly? Okay, imagine you've done something that you know was the right thing to do morally, or you have spoken up on something that you know is true, even though it is unpopular, 
And as a result of you doing that, all hell breaks out. Maybe it's happened to a friend of ours, you are told to, you know, refuses to do something, um, that's verging on, verging on the illegal, told to clear her desk. Or maybe your boss makes a veiled threat about your future. Or maybe you feel yourself sidelined at work or you come under pressure to row back your comments and apologize. How should you respond? I think Peter's friends have two options, rebel or resign. Okay, rebel, rise up against the injustice or resign themselves to it. Think about the first one. The desire to rise up and fight the injustice might have been particularly strong for these new Christians, mightn't it? Because as Peter told them in verse 16, looked at last week, they should live as people who are free. Hey guys, slave is no longer your identity. Don't define yourself by being a slave. That's not your identity. God loves you. God has chosen you. He has called you to himself. He has set you free in Christ. You're not a slave. You're his child. And they could hear that and hear a license to rebel against their masters, couldn't they? But how did slave rebellions go for slaves? Typically not very well. And a hundred years before Peter wrote this, Spartacus had led a slave revolt that ended with thousands of slaves being crucified along the Appian Way into Rome. It was a signal to slaves, don't even think about doing this. We're the ones with the power. But of course, you don't have to have a slave master to physically rise up against a slave. You don't have to physically have a literal slave master to feel your own anger and hostility rising up against being treated unjustly, do you? You know, you don't have to literally be a slave to feel angry or feel the desire to retaliate or the desire to make your own threats in response, even if that is just trying to trash the other person's reputation. The problem is, of course, that getting your own back, rebelling, revolting, that ends in a never-ending cycle of name-calling and vengeance, doesn't it? Sin just multiplies. And history tells us that the danger of revolutions is that the oppressed become oppressors. We become like those we're criticizing. Okay, if that doesn't go so well, if rebelling doesn't go so well, what about the second way to react, to resign yourself to injustice? For a slave to think, this is my lot, I just need to suck this up. Because culturally, socially, that was what was expected of them. That was what everyone told them to do. You're a slave, that's your position. Don't even think of being anything else. Plus, as the Stoics taught, the way to react to any suffering is to stay detached. Don't get involved emotionally. Let this wash over you. Now, you may not read the Stoics, but that might still be your response to resign yourself to the injustice. Not least if you're not yet a Christian and 
and because our current culture is drinking at the well of Buddhism, and of course Buddhism tells you that there is no such thing ultimately as suffering. It's all illusory. It's all imaginary. So detach yourself from it. Don't let this, don't let this influence you negatively. The problem with that is, the problem with resignation is, it doesn't deal with the injustice. So Peter calls them and us to a third way. And it's neither active rebellion or passive resignation. It is courageous, confident endurance. Verse 18 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. When you're shouted at, when you are being beaten, when you are being treated wrong for doing the right, and verse 19, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly, don't retaliate, submit to it, but do so with all respect. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that the danger in submitting is that you can do it disrespectfully? You, know, you can take your beating, either physical or verbal, but you are seething with anger on the inside and you soon let other people know about that on the outside. Is that what he means? Maybe, possibly. But interestingly, the word for respect here is the word for fear. And while Paul talks of slaves obeying their masters with fear and trembling, in the passage just before this, if you remember, Peter reserved fear for God. You don't fear others, you fear God. You honor and submit to others, but fear in Peter's thinking in this passage is reserved for God. In other words, what Peter's probably saying is be subject to your earthly masters out of deep or filled respect for God, not necessarily your master. It's why he says in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So this is not cowering in fear before an unjust master. This is standing tall and wanting to glorify God in the midst of your suffering because you know he loves you. Because you know you are his child. Even though, even though other people are saying all sorts of things about you, you know what he is saying about you. And that is courageous, confident endurance. You see, you could endure sorrow, but not be mindful of God. But that's a resignation of the Stoics, or today of the Buddhists. But to endure sorrow while being mindful of God is to keep going and to keep doing the good because you know that he sees what is happening. Verse 20. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God sees it. So when God sees it, when he sees you persisting in doing good, when others are treating you bad, and instead of retaliating, you honor, and you seek to serve, and you show kindness to those who are doing the opposite to you, God sees it. And he, what he sees is you putting his character on display. 
because they have treated you as you don't deserve to be treated, unjustly. But in response, you treat them as they don't deserve to be treated, which is grace. And when God sees that, he goes, that's my child. That's my character. But that is also deeply countercultural, isn't it? Look again at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And the word for unjust is a word that, is a word that you might know. It's the word scolios. Okay, you've probably heard it in the term of scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. Because scolios means crooked, bent, out of line. And in our current culture, we are bombarded with the message that you are your own master. You're the master of your own destiny. And the only people that you should honour, let alone submit to, are those who think and believe and affirm what you do. In other words, the ones you think are good and gentle. But to honour those I think are bent and crooked and out of line? No way. But listen to what Jesus says. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. How can we do that? That is deeply countercultural. How can we do it? Why should you do it? Last point then, the end of injustice. Okay, look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so to embrace unjust suffering and to submit to and serve and show grace to those who don't deserve it is not an optional extra, Peter says. It is our calling as Christians. Why? Because it was Christ's calling. And he's our example, Peter says. In fact, the word he uses for example is hypogrammon. Okay, imagine a classroom full of first century school children. Yeah, something like the chaos that is going on in the church offices over the road at the moment. Okay, imagine all of those children and they are all given a sheet of parchment with all the Greek letters written out on it from Alpha to Omega. And to learn their letters, they are having to trace over and copy those letters. What they are copying was called the hypogrammon. And Peter is saying, yeah, and your hypogrammon, my hypogrammon is Christ. He's not just one example you could follow among many. When you are learning, not your letters, but your life, he's the example. 
It's not like we can go, well, there's this other guy whose videos I watch on YouTube who's really taking the battle to those woke liberals or those conservative nut jobs. He's going to be my example. No, Peter says, Christ is your one true example. Follow and copy the lines of his life. I don't know if you've ever gone uh, ski touring, but on the ascent, one person takes the lead and everyone else lines up behind following their traces. And Peter's saying, when it comes to handling unjust hostility, Christ has made the path. Look, you can see his traces in the snow. You can see his footprints. Follow in his steps. There's no other way for us as Christians. And as you do, it will transform your response. Verses 22 to 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And from here on down, Peter is repeatedly quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, which if you know is where Isaiah describes the suffering servant of God who is led like a lamb to the slaughter, but opens not his mouth. And he's quoting that because Peter saw Jesus do that. How he was put on trial and beaten and mocked and crucified, though he had done nothing wrong. But how in response to that, he did not threaten or revile in return. And so as Peter looks at Jesus's footprints, walking through unjust suffering, he knows where those footprints lead. And it's not to proving ourselves right. It's not to getting our, it's not to getting our own back. It's not to taking vengeance. And yet the urge to do so can be so strong. Okay, so how can we, if that's why we should do it, because Christ did it, he's our example, how can we respond like him? Verse 23, where Peter says, Jesus did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I want to ask you, what happens when people either don't know or don't believe or maybe have forgotten that God is on the throne and he is sovereign over everything? What happens if you don't believe that or if you've forgotten it? We think we need to get even. We think that we need to strike back or answer hostility with hostility because there's no one else who's going to do it for us. No one else is on our case. But listen to what Paul says, Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, look, you don't, we don't need to take vengeance because God is going to do a much better job of it than we ever could. Now, someone might say, hey, come on, belief in a God who judges, belief in a God who takes vengeance against the wicked, that is so primitive. That just feeds the cycle of violence. What do you think Peter and Paul would say to that? They would say, no, it doesn't. 
It's precisely the failure to believe in an ultimate judge. It's that that feeds the cycle of violence and hostility because you think, I've got to get my justice now. I've got to prove myself right. I've got to get my own back because no one else is going to do it for me. But when you know God is the judge and I can entrust myself to him, you don't need to get bent out of shape by unjust judges or out of line masters. But you also don't need to resign yourself to the injustice. It's not like sweeping it under the carpet and saying it is not unjust. Instead, you can entrust yourself to him and continue to do good with confidence and courage, whatever comes your way, because one day you know justice will be done. So you keep doing the good. Okay, but is, is justice, where's the security in justice? Because isn't justice a bit of a double-edged sword? You know, if others are going to face judgment, what about us? What about the times when I fight back? What about times in this last week when we, I think, been treated unjustly and I feel this anger and resentment rising up inside me? What about those times when I don't walk in Christ's step, when I treat people unjustly? I mean, it's fine if God's a partial judge and he's going to show me favour and not them. But that's not what Peter's saying, is it? God is a God who judges justly. So where is the security in divine justice? Verse 24. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And at the cross, Jesus carried our sins and all of our failures, and he was judged in our place. And who was crucifixion reserved for? Crucifixion was considered so horrible a death that it was reserved for the lowest of the low. It was reserved for slaves. And Peter is saying, Jesus took that place for you. He is the ultimate suffering slave. And when you know that he has treated you with grace way better than we deserve to be treated, we will treat those who treat us worse than we deserve with that same grace. Because that's how Jesus treated us. It's what Peter means when he says that because of Christ's death, we die to sin and we live to righteousness. Hey, we're Christians. We're going to die to hating our enemies. We're going to die to reviling those who revile us. We're going to die to trashing other people's reputations. We're going to die to answering hostility with hostility. And instead, we are going to show grace and we're going to bless because that's what Christ did to us. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Okay, so Jesus is not just the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the shepherd who goes in search of the sheep, in search of those who are lost in the mire and the mud of hating their enemies and returning fire with fire. You see, worshipping a God 
who was crucified like a slave out of love for his enemies, that has far greater power to bring about a far greater revolution than any revolt ever could. And it did. Because it is a revolution that begins with his resurrection and the transformation of our hearts. Let's pray.